0: The Amy Podcast, Episode 2, is brought to you by Philips Healthcare. By partnering with clinicians and customers, Philips Healthcare develops innovative solutions to provide better value and expand access to care. Philips, Innovation and You.
1: Welcome to the Amy Podcast, produced by the Association for the Advancement of Medical Instrumentation in partnership with the
0: studios of Healthcare Tech Talk. Hello, and welcome to the Amy podcast. I'm Terry Baker. And I'm Kelly Hill. Kelly, today we discuss the important topic of ventilator technology.
2: That's right, Terry. And to discuss ventilator technology, we have three subject matter experts with us today. Dr. Stuart McGrain, who graduated from the University of Glasgow in 1998, following which he certified in anesthesiology in the United Kingdom. In 2004, he moved to the Vanderbilt Medical Center in the United States, where he completed an anesthesiology residency and critical care fellowship. During this time, Dr. Mcgrain completed a Master's of Science in Clinical Investigation to develop his skills as a clinician, scientist, and educator. Second, we have Rhonda Bradley. She is the owner of Spiritus Consultants, Spiritus provides clinical, sales, and marketing support for various medical device manufacturers and healthcare facilities. Rhonda's background includes serving on the Neonate Pediatric Transport Team at Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital and as the Director of Respiratory Care at Rankin-Jordan Pediatric Specialty Hospital. She has also worked in home care in home ventilation management. Finally, we have Brian Gross. Brian is currently a fellow scientist and clinical systems architect in the patient care and monitoring solutions business group at Phillips Healthcare in Andover, Massachusetts. He has worked for the patient monitoring and informatics businesses for over 22 years. Brian received his BSEE and master's of science in biomedical engineering from Worcester Polytechnic Institute in Worcester, Massachusetts. He is a licensed respiratory care practitioner and formerly a paramedic and paramedic skills evaluator. So welcome to the show, Brian, Rhonda, and Stuart. How are you guys? Doing great, Great. Kelly. Thanks. We're great. Thank you. Excellent. So we're here to talk a little bit about ventilator technology, and the reason I say a little bit is because this is uh, lengthy and, and sometimes dense material that we will not be able to pack into this single episode, so we may expand into additional ones. But predominantly, uh, our listener group for the Amy podcast is going to be healthcare technology management professionals. There are, of course, IT and clinicians that join in, and but our targeted population is really those HTMs. So in order to launch this, and feel free to jump in at whatever point you like, but uh, in order to launch this, I wanted to just do a, a, just a brief overview of ventilator technology, the movement of ventilator technology in about the last decade. I was reading the article put out by Amy called Clearing the Air. And there were a couple of things that were really interesting to me that I'd love comments on. The very first thing is the movement from piston-based to blower-based technology and ventilators. Can somebody elaborate a little bit on that?
1: Well, I could try to help answer that, Kelly. This is Brian. So back when I started in the, uh, in the 80s, um, you know, the ventilators on market were just that. They were essentially a, a cycling piston off of a, off of a cyclic um, a servo of some sort. Um, you set your volume by the stroke of the piston. You set your flows and pressures by the rate of the piston cycles. So that was really state-of-the-art back then. Very reliable, not not really sophisticated. As technology moved forward, we now have the ability to um, have very sophisticated microprocessor-controlled and regulated blower boxes, if you will, that we can generate very precise volume flow characteristics over time. And that's really what most of the t- technology is based on market today, with a few exceptions.
2: So there are still some exceptions.
1: Correct. Correct. I mean, I, I, the last time I worked in the hospital, uh, there was still uh, um, MA1s and uh, even Emerson's in the closet for uh, a certain emergencies. So those devices are very hard to get rid of.
2: So this changeover, is the the paramount piece to this the ability to more tightly control the settings and the delivery that the patient receives? Or is there something mechanically speaking or technology speaking that makes this change so important? So
1: as the technology um, improves, uh, we find that by being able to run the blower box, you get a much smaller form factor with a much more robust and more diverse therapy delivery model. So it's not limited to just SIMV or even CMV, but you can, you can provide a lot more augmented models that are a little more reliable and much more precise. So from the same device, you can access both the neonatal market and into to even chronic uh, home environment.
3: Brian, I was wondering if you feel that blower models are a lot more ubiquitous within the hospital system than they were 10 years ago. I'm really focused
1: more on the emerging technologies, and I know where the, at least within my organization, where the investments in technology are being made, and they're not on the piston systems.
4: Rhonda, you had something? No, I was just going to comment that the microprocessor systems and the blower-type ventilators seem to, from an engineering perspective, I'm speaking as a clinician, but in my experience and working with them, seem to have the ability, through the microprocessor systems, to be more interactive with the patient's, where our previous some of our previous piston driven systems it seemed to be more of a challenge on the engineering side to allow them to interact with patients and so as we move towards in a clinical setting to trying to reduce the amount of particularly paralytic medications that we're giving and also sedation as we find that there are many reasons why those can be clinically problematic for patients having the ability for the ventilator to interact with the patient's breathing pattern becomes more and more important.
2: Well, and I actually as a as a fellow clinician, um, I can second that because the use of paralytics and amnestics and pain medications can actually cause Direct problems with ventilators via things like bronchospasms and and other complications that paralytics can induce. Exactly. So uh, Brian had actually thrown out a couple of acronyms. He talked about SIMV and and others. As I was reading the article, I'm discovering new ways to to synchronize the ventilator and the patient, and I am seeing acronyms that, as a clinician, I don't believe I've ever seen before. NAVA PP PAV, and I'm wondering, do these somehow now differ from the SIMV or the AC that I'm used to seeing?
3: That's a great question. So yes, these are uh, different modes, I think, with the move to sort of light sedation and have patients a lot more awake during their uh, clinical course, then we're finding that More mandatory ventilation is tolerated poorly by patients and we're now looking for more spontaneous modes that similarly decrease the work of breathing. And really the the NAVA, I think is Neurally Assisted Ventilatory Assist, and the Proportional Assist Ventilation, the PAV, are really modes that will allow the patient to have spontaneous breathing but minimize their uh, work of breathing during these modes and really transition away from what we consider control controlled modes of ventilation.
2: Okay, so we're making the shift basically to more of a patient-controlled versus a machine-controlled breathing. Put simply, is that correct?
1: Yes. Yeah, and I think it also boils down to you know, decreased work of breathing overall. And even if that's patient-triggered or machine-triggered.
2: Okay. So the application, because that's really what we're talking about at this point, the application of ventilator technology hasn't changed since the dawn of ventilators. (laughs) Would that be an accurate statement? I mean, we have to deliver air to people and the air has to be released somehow. So I hear you saying, like I said, put simply, you know, to decrease the work of breathing, make it more of a patient controlled versus a machine controlled. Do you feel like the application of ventilator technology itself then actually has changed?
4: I would say yes, that it has changed in that as more innovation takes place, we're seeing more and more as was mentioned earlier shift from a clinician setting the ventilator settings and the machine delivering exactly what you tell the ventilator to deliver to more biofeedback utilizing more modes and hybrid breath types of pressure support for example pressure support has been around since the nineties but it has really developed into what we've learned of how to trigger the breath on the initiation end, as well as how to terminate the breath or to allow, even better, the patient to terminate the breath when it's appropriate clinically to allow that patient to feel more comfortable with mechanical ventilation. So I would say that, yes, we're still pushing air in and allowing air to be exhaled. Uh, Even in some situations, pulling air out Mm -hmm. in a positive pressure ventilation method versus negative pressure ventilation, which is how much of our ventilation started with the iron lung. Mm -hmm. But we have evolved that piece of positive pressure ventilation with the technology that's available to allow it to interact with the patient in a much more precise way and also much more expediently. So, for example, NAVA, which is, uh, you know, the neuro-triggering, allows the ventilator to interact with the patient at a very early interaction with diaphragmatic movement, where flow changes and pressure changes is what we've used in the past. So, the question then becomes, as we look at how to more quickly react to a patient wanting to breathe as well as reacting to the patient wanting the breath to end, where there'll be clinical significance to making that process faster and faster. So I think that's a piece that we still don't know. We still don't know if those pieces will actually have outcome changes, outcome differences, but we continue to pro- to move towards that, that uh, process, I think.
0: Anyone else have any thoughts on that?
3: I agree with what she said. I think NAVA, I remember we had uh, the rep come to my institution about six years ago and we only got Nava capable ventilators I think in the past two years. It it makes good sense. The problem with NAVA is the uh, device you have to insert to to allow the synchronization with the patient is uh, very expensive and there's not the evidence there yet to show that it truly improves outcomes that justifies that expense. So I can tell you in my in my time I've not used it since we got those ventilators and I spoke to some of my colleagues and I can only find one of my colleagues that's used it twice in the past two years. I think it's because we don't have the evidence there to...
2: But if we're not if we're not using it, how can we generate data?
3: Well, but we, well, we can use it in a research environment to generate the data. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah,
1: and that's typically the challenge we have with major innovations in healthcare. They take ten to seventeen years to. Mm-hmm.
0: Find- yeah. Well, having said that, ventilator technology, obviously, we're we're talking about the fact that it has developed and and is evolving. And we've gotten new modes added to the systems, and, and a lot of these are exciting or, or interesting, yet has it become unnecessarily complicated? Is, this, is all these different options creating an environment of uh, uncertainty or people that are not familiar with how to actually implement and utilize these various options? Yeah, I think it
1: definitely has. I mean, in some cases, there's a different word for the same mode on different devices, which makes it just a little bit more complex if you have a hybrid uh, model where a facility isn't using the same ventilator brand or um, if you're going between facilities where um, you know, interpreting what is the intent of the therapy that you're really trying to accomplish and then how does it really get optimized on the device you have available to you. So I do believe that the, the nomenclature or the ontology under the ventilator modes and, and uh, operational behaviors is a challenge.
4: I would definitely second what Brian is saying about the nomenclature on ventilators and preparing for the upcoming summit and looking at, you know, some of the information that's out there, I found that in um, Mosby's uh, newest edition of Respiratory Equipment, the eighth edition, which is a common textbook used in respiratory therapy programs around the country. They cite 174 different unique names for modes and breath types on 34 different ventilators. So if you, can, if you can think about, you know, some of those modes and breath types are very similar in the way that they work. They do primarily the same thing on various different manufacturers, ventilators, but they all have different names. So <laughs> one has trademarked their own special name for things. Uh. And so we end up with this enormous um, dictionary of names for many times the same thing. So, for example, there's a a mode of ventilation or a breath type of ventilation um, that most ICU ventilators have added uh, over the last few years. I don't even know what to start by calling it because everyone calls it something different, but sort of a defining description of it is volume targeted pressure control. So, if you look at a Covidian or Puritan Bennett ventilator, for example, they call that VC plus. If you look at a Drager, they call that auto flow. If you look at a Carefusion ventilator, um, they call it pressure regulated volume control or PRVC. And the list goes on and on as we look at different manufacturers. For the most part, all of those breath types or or modes of ventilation do very close to the same thing. So if I'm a physician or respiratory therapist or a bedside nurse, working with multiple different ventilators, I may even be unclear as to what mode of ventilation my patient is on because or how that breath is actually delivered because different manufacturers label it in different ways. So it's not
2: that these new modes that are being added by the manufacturers aren't rather exciting or purposeful or helpful or advancing the cause. It really does boil down to the fact that they're all calling their modes by different names. It, am I understanding that correctly?
4: Yes, I would say that's much of it. And I, you know, I, I try to balance my thoughts or opinions about this in that. The one thing that we don't want to do as clinicians is stifle innovation. So I I clearly recognize that, you know, there is a fear that if we're unable to label things to recognize slight differences between them from one manufacturer to another, that, that we might stifle innovation, and we certainly don't want to do that. On the other hand, if we could categorize things into groups and label them either more plainly using, you know, plain medical language um, to describe the breath uh, or the mode or um, have a a listing that it would, would fall under, I think it would make it easier for clinicians to move from ventilator to ventilator as well as from clinical care environment to environment. So I think many times, you know, a hospital, for example, might have all one brand of ventilator in their ICU. But when the patient's moving to an LTAC or a subacute, they might have something different that's more specialized to their environment and then on to home care. And so because there are many different labels for sort of the same thing or very similar uh, breath types or modes, uh, it creates confusion moving across the spectrum for patients and clinicians.
1: Ron is absolutely correct, and I think um, at the upcoming Amy FDA summit, uh, Dr. Dane is going to be uh, presenting um, his work in the ICO uh, committee that's working on standardizing ventilator documents. So I think that that's a very good point. And, and at the end of the day, you could you could thoroughly describe every breath that we deliver to patients in time flow time. Excuse me, time flow volume and what the intent of the therapy was and what the deliberate therapy was so at the end of the day you're right there's probably some primitive library that we could create for each breath each flow pattern each volume pattern that would you know show everything that we're doing and give you a better portfolio rather than trade names or you know SIMV++ <laughs>
2: just very quickly because I'm I'm kind of as the clinician I'm the one who likes to to unmuddy any waters that I see maybe getting muddied in terms of who we have listening when I when I read the article it talks about lack of standardized modes and nomenclature so is it really that these manufacturers are coming up with wildly different modes from one another, or are they really all doing the same thing, just not speaking the same language?
1: Being from industry, I'll let the the other clinicians answer that question.
2: Okay.
3: (laughs) Yes, I believe that the manufacturers are doing the same thing, but just attaching different names to it.
2: Okay, so we're not talking about, you know, one manufacturer has X amount of modes and the other manufacturer has this many more modes or different modes. It's just that they call them by different names.
3: There may be one or two differences within your modes, like NAVA and uh, PAV, Mm -hmm. but most of them are the same mode, different name.
2: So to Rhonda and Brian's point, in effect, in theory, always in theory, it, it should not be that difficult to put together a library, I liked that word, to standardize this.
3: No, it, need, it needs done. It 100% needs done.
2: So then the big question, which I'm sure will really launch our conversation, is where do we start?
4: There's actually been a fair amount of work done on, um, I think the term they used was taxonomy of... Uh, the ventilator mode and breath type done by Chatburn. And I believe that Mr. Chatburn is going to be at the summit. So I think that there'll be some of that information possibly described or discussed there. I actually had the opportunity to, to look over that information. Um, it's in a recent issue of respiratory care that they go into some further uh, information about it and, and look at the breakdown and how the breakdown was developed. It's quite complicated still. I, I have to say, there are multiple listings of, you know how the breath is delivered, who, how the ventilator um, recognizes that the patient is trying to take a breath, how is the breath ended? Is there any change within a breath? Is the, is the change on the next breath uh, when it's doing some of these volume targeting types of things? So it's fairly complex, even at that even as we break it down. So I think that it's a great starting point that Chatburn has worked on diligently with his group, but I think that we can even further simplify that. And, and to talk to our colleagues in the, in the IT world and looking at, if any of you out there have looked at mapping the information that comes out of your ventilator into your electronic medical record, you feel our pain, on the other end, we feel the pain on the respiratory therapy side of setting the ventilator up and knowing that we're doing the best thing for patients, you're feeling it on the other end trying to decipher the data that's coming out on the other end and anybody who's done the mapping recognizes that it's very difficult when your institution has multiple ventilators. Because of this calling things multiple different things. So
0: yeah, that's, a, that's what I was hearing when uh, you were explaining all the different 140 different ways to describe 174 all the, hun, 174 different ways to <laughs> dis, you know to call the different modes. And I was thinking mapping that data across because I have, well, that's not my specialty, been in an environment of biomedical data interface for eight, nine years now. And it's challenging already <laughs> it, yeah. you know, to get all the various medical devices we try to bring into the medical record, let alone to have so much variation in how they might send their data.
1: I yeah, agree. And, and there is ongoing work in this area. In fact, there are probably several work, three, work threads that uh, uh, are worth monitoring. I know there's an ISO, IEC group, um, TC121, working on that. There's also an IEG and an IEEE event nomenclature group working on that. They don't seem to be s- approaching the problem from the same perspective. And some of the work is starting or at least appears to be converging, which is a good sign. But, you know, until we get to uh, an agreed dictionary of what do we call these time flow, time volume characteristics, I agree it's going to be a challenge. And it's not just in the day-to-day operation. I mean, these, are, these are impediments to getting to closed-loop and semi-closed-loop systems.
2: And bringing it to the academic setting or the educational setting, as it were, when we talk about training professionals, whether they be physicians, nurses, RTs, or other allied health staff, and actually, for that matter, including health IT and HTMs. Stuart, I know that you work at Vanderbilt Medical Center, and it's my understanding that you do the anesthesiology uh, resident simulation program there. What does this mean in in terms of a programmatic and, and training setting?
3: Well, we think about just the the people who are involved in the ventilators, are the RTs, the attending physicians, the nurses, and the residents. From an RT perspective, I think there's good training because in their training, they have an understanding of the vent modes. Therefore, they seem to be able to come from different institutions and seamlessly integrate into ours and work with our ventilators. From the nurses' perspective, that is a big source of confusion for the nurse to be at the bedside, especially when you start changing the names of the modes. And as a physician, I do not like my nurse to be uncomfortable at the bedside. Mm And once you once you actually explain what the mode is to the nurse, they know it by something else. Yeah. You can see them relax. But it definitely creates a confusion for our nurses. From the resident perspective, our issue is that our residents are exposed to two different types of ventilators. We have our ICU ventilators, and we still have bellows-driven anesthesia machines. And the understanding of... The different modes is just not there, such that we we can put them in the simulation and we can try and change certain criteria as part of the scenario, and the resident response be the same if they're using an ICU ventilator or they're using a bellows-driven anaesthetic ventilator, which it shouldn't be, and they get confused. They get confused on the modes in the. Anesthetic bellows-driven ventilator, and don't have a full understanding of them,
2: which may then, or undoubtedly, extrapolate to the professional practice setting.
3: Yes, they they make they make errors of judgment,
2: right? Or or even in communication, it, the RT relies on the physician to say, "This is what I need," and you know the the RT then also struggles to get the appropriate vent mode ordered. So there's a lot of opportunity for breakdown, I would think.
3: Yes, and we interestingly, we've actually started just mapping our ventilators onto our EMR. Mm-hmm. And conveniently, and that's a sarcastic conveniently, <laughs> the code from the ventilator does not marry up with the code of our EMR. So right. when the technology maps over, you're actually looking at a completely new ventilatory mode that you've never seen before. Mm. wow that I, I then have to i had to actually request the basically the menu for the the mapping so I could decipher what uh, mode my patient was on
2: oh wow oh my and we don't have the time to do that every time that occurs do we
3: well now, now that I've got the menu i can i i keep it on my person <laughs> but okay. the thing is i'm one of i'm one of maybe fifty critical care physicians yeah right that that's a, a non sustainable way
1: forward given that if right. another ventilator shows up at the facility that might have newer software in it you know it's unclear how that's going to be represented you know, in the downstream consuming systems as well.
2: And these are the kind of complications that actually do fall, and correct me if I'm wrong, Terry, but these are the kind of complications that actually do fall on IT and HTMs, biomeds, when things aren't communicating appropriately or at least not translating to the clinician.
0: Well, I definitely think we end up uh, struggling to deal with those technical issues with multiple vendors. Anytime you have multiple technologies, multiple vendor- vendors, uh, interoperability is the a big issue out there, and this is an example where it's difficult to uh, keep up with that.
2: So standardized nomenclature opens the gate to <laughs> yeah. interoperability then as well. Yeah.
1: That's certainly one enabler. I mean, other things that, that are being touched on here include you know, the, the responsible uh, facility doing a risk management as new systems come in. You know, and when, when an airplane is built, it's an engineered system. Unfortunately, a lot of the healthcare systems are not engineered. They're evolutionary so I think as new components get introduced into the you know, time-critical decision-making space, like the critical care units, the ICUs, what have you, and the OR, you really need to evaluate what's the impact to the overall system and do a risk assessment along the way as these components change and get added.
2: And we've talked with other people, Brian, in our interviews about that very business model being in place, established, and structured before we start bringing in, you know to look at existing technology or start bringing in new technology., um, so that seems to be a real hot button uh, in the healthcare industry right now. Uh,
0: now, I like that term. these these aren't developed, they evolve. yeah, they're evolutionary.
1: Right. And for good reasons, right? It would be unaffordable to throw everything out and have everything taught the new standards, even if they were available today that everyone could agree with. And, you know, the issue is, at the end of the day, um, this is something that I think both industry and the responsible facilities, responsible centers have as uh, part, of their, um, part of their responsibility. That, you know, we're, we're here, manufacturers are here to provide you the very best and safest technology possible. But it's also up to the facilities to adopt them and, and develop care process around them that also augment safety.
0: Rhonda, any thoughts on uh, this particular part of the topic?
4: No, I mean, I would, I would just say, I mean, that that I would agree. I mean, and I think that you know, uh, some people may take it. That sort of the an easier answer would be, you know, you you have all your ventilators across the system from the same manufacturer, and so you have one mapping system, you have one, hopefully, one nomenclature across their different their different uh, ventilators, and you know, done, done, problem solved. But I think that. The issue is much more complex than that in that certain different ventilators from certain manufacturers fit better in, in some environments and for many different reasons, including how the technology works, you know, the size, the footprint, is it mobile, is it not mobile, the cost, the price point of the certain ventilators, that it is difficult sometimes to find a single manufacturer that really meet the needs of all the different environments in which you're trying to employ the technology. So I think that's something to think about and why I personally feel that working towards common nomenclature and data output, to the electronic medical record in some type of format would, would help everyone.
2: And you've all spoken, Rhonda, you especially, but you've all spoken to the fact that the work on that, on that standardization process for modes and nomenclature has begun and, and potentially uh, started, you know, in fact, years ago. My question is, where do the standardization guidelines come from? This ultimate goal that we are attempting to reach Uh, who establishes that? Who publishes it? Who maintains control of it? Are we talking about the FDA? Are we talking about a different organization? You know, how many roundtables might there have to be? What do you what do you see uh, happening as we as we work toward that goal? Well,
1: I I can certainly tell you about the standard groups that I'm involved with. Um, When you look at organizations like IEC or the International Electrotechnical Commission, it is a consensus uh, standardization body which um, has engineering, scientists, clinicians, um, in some cases, patients, and, um, and caregivers involved in understanding the requirements on the standardization, where the risk and benefit elements are, and from there, reviewing with other constituents within the communities and key stakeholders, trying to get to this consensus standard definition Now, as a member of AMI, that's also the environment where we build standards and standard definitions, but again, those include or should include the physicians, the engineering, the manufacturers, the uh, users, and what have you, so that all sides of the problem are viewed before something is codified. Typically, FDA would recognize the international standards as safety performance criteria for devices and systems coming for regulatory review, so there's a growing library of standards and standard versions that industry needs to comply with, specifically for, at least in the U.S., regulatory clearance. But these are consensus standards, and as a result, they do take a while to get to good enough, and they do have to evolve over time to keep them fresh and accurate. A good good example is the current medical device alarm standards, which were foundationally based uh, 20 years ago, where the technologies have leapfrogged beyond what is permissive under the standards. And even, as I said, if the standards were um, released and uh, ratified today, it would take years before that technology was on market and integrated into the care delivery environments. So it's not a short-term solution.
0: Yeah, this would be a lot easier. if, Instead of consensus-based, we could just say this is how it's going to be.
1: Agree, but even if you could, um, I don't think the facilities, at least in the U.S., would be able to invest in upgrades to their technology, their monitoring systems, ventilator systems, and EMR systems mm-hmm. to take advantage of that nomenclature tomorrow. That, that's something that is going to take years to migrate its way through the care delivery process.
2: Ten to 17 years, probably, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Any other thoughts out there, Stuart?
3: I think uh, he, he was correct. It's going to take industry and physicians' to work together to come up with what the standardised nomenclature is. And in this day and age, hospitals don't have a lot of money to invest in these things, such that until this financial climate changes, even if it was to come out tomorrow, I don't think it'd be a priority for many institutions.
2: Important to know, actually. And and if I could
1: just add one more plug. Um, it is It is critical to get the clinician's perspective into these standards in many cases, it is what's, uh, what's lacking. Amy is a great opportunity to reach out, get involved, review, provide comment. Uh, it is a volunteer. Um, it's a uh, industry and user-based environment where you can actually get involved and contribute to delivering value to what's happening in tomorrow's technology. So I re- really encourage you, if you're interested, uh, to reach out to Amy and evaluate if you can be a part of the standards process.
2: So what I heard, Rhonda, is that if you and I are not involved in that process yet, or aren't members of the IEC, that we should get there.
4: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that it definitely behooves the respiratory therapy world and, and nursing as well as a profession to to be involved with this, because I think we find many times that, you know, I've talked to a lot of people who, where respiratory therapy was not involved on the the front end of, for example, working on mapping for the ventilators, and then you know, down the road, all of a sudden it was, well, why do we have so many different names because we have three different ventilators and and what's going on with this? And then the respiratory therapists get involved and they say, well, it's because this and this are exactly the same thing. They're just named differently on different ventilators. So I think that, that we do need to insert ourselves more into the process and, and make sure that what's happening at the bedside is being transfer that that knowledge base um, is being transferred and then working together with the colleagues on the IT side to make sure that we're all sort of talking the same language which isn't always easy.
2: Not at all. Obviously, we've made it obvious, rather, why we want to get clinicians involved in this, why physicians uh, certainly should be involved in this. And all three of you, the question is for all three of you, not to pinpoint Brian because, you know, he works for who he works for, but are manufacturers interested in responding to this challenge?
1: Well, I I guess I'll start.
2: Were you the obvious choice? I don't know. Not
1: not to pinpoint Brian, but the answer is yes, absolutely, Um, and for multiple reasons, I think, for the most part, industry is participating in those standards committees because they're the ones sending the people to the the meetings trying to develop that consensus uh, standard or those consensus uh, documents. We're interested because we recognize the need, we recognize the contribution to care, and we, more importantly, recognize the improvement to safety that appropriate standards and testing to standards would give to the end user. You know, the the challenge is when you have so many interested parties at the table, these things sometimes take time. And since they are consensus documents, you may not get everything you want. But, Mm -hmm. you know, that's the reason why you need to be involved. You need to have your comments. Um, available. You need to read the documents and provide your comments in order to get a, a lot of the uh, areas that there may not be attention and recognition as as current active issues uh, visible to the teams working on this.
2: And I, I truly believe, having been a nurse manager, I, I deal with vendors and, and manufacturers all the time. And I truly believe that manufacturers uh, and their vendors have the patient safety first and foremost in mind same as the clinicians do same as physicians do but I know also that manufacturers want to maintain their uniqueness you know they want to have certain features and bells and whistles and perhaps even nomenclature that distinguish them from one another and so that was really the root of my question was are they also going to be very slow to adopt this new culture or mentality or are are they, you know, are some of them already showing uh, advances now?
1: Yeah, I think it's a business imperative for anyone involved in this area that, you know, when you do have a, a convened standard, that you do bring product on market that complies with that. Again, reflecting back on the alarm, uh, medical device alarms environment, uh, it's a non-negotiable. You you must deliver these, uh, these safety features or your device doesn't get cleared. So appropriate level of standardization is essential. To ensure patient and user safety. Um, and we have to just be careful that the standards don't prevent innovation and um, an advancement to the technologies, which we've seen in some areas. Uh, given that they may be over-prescriptive, so that you know, if a particular vendor happens to have a strong voice and insists that everything is described this way, because that's what his or her ventilator does, mm-hmm. it may not be in the best interest of, of the innovation environment. So I, we, we, have to, we have to thread that needle very carefully, but I, I do ultimately feel that the R-adopted industry is behind this because it's, a, it's an imperative that we do this to ensure safety overall for, for our patients.
3: I've got a question for Brian, actually. I know within the clinical world, we are all responsible and answerable to our uh, professional organisations, for instance, in the critical care. It's the Society of Critical Care Medicine, SECM. They really set our guidelines, the ones that we have to work by, and we're sort of answerable in a court of law to those standards. Who is industry answerable to, and who will really get consensus amongst them? Who can force consensus amongst industry?
1: Well, th- th- for the US that's a fairly simple question. It's essentially FDA whose regulatory oversight for, um, for the medical technologies, um, which is one of the reasons why I think Amy continues their partnership with FDA at these, uh, these summits focusing on technology and technology challenges. So outside of the U.S., depending on whether it's a country that is uh, recognizes FDA regulatory authority or has their own, there's a little bit difference or there's a bit of a difference in how that's implemented. But in many cases, these are international standards that we're talking about. Um, so once you've designed a system and have showed through objective evidence that you're compliant to a standard, um, that really helps the world, not just the, uh, the U.S. regulatory environment.
0: Thank
2: you. Rhonda, I have a question quickly based on some of the conversation that we've had here. As a consultant, which you are, how do you help translate or mediate, if you will, those decisions, those communications made between manufacturers, hospital organizations, and and other groups involved in those decisions?
4: Yeah, I mean, I I think that looking at, uh, again, just trying to, it's difficult to know all of the ins and outs of all the different devices. And and their nomenclature because they're so very different. But I think it's really important to have those clinical bedside experts who who sort of have, have worked that out, who have those understandings, uh, to be available to help in those transitions. So I don't know if I'm exactly answering your question, but as an example, you know, there's certain geography in which I typically um, am doing consulting between home care, subacute centers, and hospitals. Um, and even some skilled nursing facilities. Um, And it's really, it's behooved me over the years to really get in there with those manuals and really understand exactly how that particular ventilator is delivering a breath so that I can help to bridge that naming or nomenclature gap between one manufacturer and another. So I, I would like to agree with Brian in that I believe that the manufacturers that I've worked with in the past they really do have the, the thought that they would, you know, they want to improve patient safety. They want to improve clinicians' ability to uh, utilize and, and put their technology to work in their, their healthcare system. At the same time, I anticipate a little bit of pushback. And Ryan may be more privy to those types of discussions that have happened at roundtables than I. But um, just because people are very market aware, that calling something by a special name uh, can sometimes generate the belief by the clinicians that it's doing something different and that they must have this brand of of ventilator because it does something different when in fact there are possibly very little differences between them and certainly no proven outcomes differences between the technologies.
2: Actually, that was my point. In fact, Rhonda, in asking that question, and and again, that question was posed to all of you and and you did just answer it. I mean, they do have a product and they do want to sell that product to you and they want to edge out the competition somehow. And so, you know. Like I said, being a nurse manager, I've had this experience and there's no maliciousness in it. You know, there's no, there's nothing wrong or bad about, about it. I just, I do wonder if, if this kind of standardization, you know, gradually wears away or at least perceivably to the manufacturers and the vendors and the salespeople, if it, you know, sort of gradually wears away that edge a little bit.
1: Well, it depends on what part of the standardization we're talking about. I mean, there's standardization in biocompatibility, there's standardization in battery behaviors, we're talking specifically about ventilator mode or therapy delivery nomenclature that can get interesting because again I think you may run into some challenges where new modalities and new methodologies for delivering that therapy may be impeded because we can't call it something under the standard and that's that's you have to be careful of you don't want to stop innovation right by that that standardization requirement however if the standardization requires that you map into you know uh, therapy primitives Right? So what is the flow volume um, or the flow volume time relationships? Those you can express regardless of how you're delivering the breath. And you can still call it something else in, you know, for, the, for the user or for the literature. Uh, but underlying knowing what you're doing with each breath, that allows you to map into some of these primitives that you can express in the EMR or in, in other controllers. So I don't think it's un—it's unsurmountable. I think the challenge is how do you get the uh, the right nomenclature on the front label, but then the right representation in the in the back office, so to speak.
2: Nice. Nicely put. I like that. We don't want to um, monopolize a whole lot of your time and, and we have to be mindful of, of how long the podcast gets as well. But I do want to invite if there was a point we didn't touch on related to, to standardization of the modes and nomenclature or even the ventilator mechanics. If there's something that we didn't hit, please feel free to speak up if you have some thoughts.
1: Well, I, I would like to pose to the group um, what they perceive as the value of some of these closed- loop. Technologies that are emerging. Um, I know, uh, you know, Department of Defense is very interested in having autonomous technology available for you know, wounded warrior transport. Um, that really has the the potential of being disruptive in the critical care and inpatient facilities, especially when we have a reduction in the number of qualified clinicians. But the risk here is now we're we're dulling the knives, so to speak, in in the. Uh, um in the drawer and I was interested to see if this is an area that you feel is is required it's pressing it's something that you see happening or is not something that's on the radar quite yet
3: I've not seen this in my institution but I I think it's going to have to come into play I think with the change in the healthcare landscape with regards to funding and reimbursement that the number of people in the in the hospital and number of people attending at bedside in whatever capacity is decreasing Therefore, I think the closed-loop technologies are going to have to come into play more as a driver for patient safety.
4: Rhonda? I would definitely agree. I think on the ventilator side specifically, You know, there's been uh, quite a bit of work done both in the United States as well as in Europe with looking at closed loop with oxygenation, utilizing pulse oximetry for just the operation of the blender, for example, on a ventilator um, and delivery of FiO2 and maybe some biofeedback things um, with the ventilator, patient efforts, decreasing the amount of support, as well as um, capnography or entitled CO2. I'm excited about that as a clinician because I think that it there are some real possibilities for it um, down the road I think we have to be very mindful that the closed-loop systems will only be as good as the weakest link and so if you are looking at controlling ventilation with capnography for example Uh, It is absolutely imperative that the technology that goes into the capnography is maybe even more important than the ventilator technology at that point because your ventilator is then making decisions about how it delivers breaths, what size, the depth, the pressure, those kinds of things based upon that data. And if that data is erroneous for whatever reason... Something with the technology, just some sort of um, logistical issue with the way cables connect, you could have some serious consequences from that. So I think that it's it's exciting to look at in the future, but it's also something that I would say we have to be very um, cautiously optimistic about, and really look at every single individual piece from both the technology, how it interfaces with each other, the logistics of how it's implemented. And I think all of those pieces are going to be really important before the biofeedback and the closed loop systems will really be efficacious as well as safe. Your thoughts, having asked that question, Brian?
1: No, I think that, you, know, you elicited the, uh, the, the feedback that I was, uh, I was expecting, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that there's consensus, at least within the clinician environment. You know, that that's one of the issues that we run into is the technology is approaching the ability to do these things, and you're absolutely right. They have to be fault tolerant. They have to be providing unambiguous signals to the operators because when these when these do come available, you know, keep in mind it took four people to fly airplanes in the 50s. Now there are two, and uh, the, both of them aren't necessary at, this, at at any given time. So you're right. We have to we have to think through the the uh, the, the safety aspects as well as the failure modes that such systems could induce. But at the main, at, at the um, at the back end of that, I think there, there's some efficiencies that we could gather, and you know, I think there's a, there's a new horizon coming that that might be an area that we want to pay attention to moving forward. But that could be a completely separate,
0: yeah. I was going to say, I think. Uh I hate to cut us a, a short today, but I think are uh, short on that topic anyway. But I smell a whole other episode, <laughs> and uh, as we mentioned earlier in the show, that this easily, as we began to look at it, can become a series of episodes around ventilator technology, around the various issues around ventilators. And we we just want to thank uh, all three of you for joining us today and sharing your perspectives on uh, this important topic. Will all three of you be at the Ventilator Summit in September? Yeah, I'm expected to be
3: there. Yeah, I'll be there.
4: And I will as well. All right, well. Excellent.
0: Great. So hopefully you'll have a a great opportunity to weigh in on all these important decisions uh, being made around these standards.
2: I'm sure that we'll do a multiple series with your blessings and your availability. So hopefully we'll be able to reach out to you guys again soon. But for now, we'll just say thank you and goodbye.
0: Thank you. Thanks very much. And we want to thank you, our audience, for joining us today we want to remind you that you can listen to this show via iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio.
2: Again, we would like to thank our sponsor, Philips Healthcare. Learn more about Philips Healthcare at philips.com.
0: For this episode of the Amy podcast, I'm Terry Baker.
2: And I'm Kelly Hill.